So Ephesians chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 19 through 22 mainly, but for context we'll back up to verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So that you, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Well, a friend once shared some humorous New Year's resolutions like these. 2019, I will get my weight down below 175 pounds. 2020, I watch my calories until my weight is below 195 pounds. 2021, I will follow my diet, new diet until I get below 215 pounds. 2022, I will work out once a week. 2023, I will drive past the gym at least once a week. 2019, I will read at least 20 good books a year. 2020, I will read at least 10 books this year. 2021, I'll read five books this year. 2022, I'll read some articles in the newspaper this year. 2023, I'll scan the headlines on the news feed this year. 2019, I'll pay off my bank loan promptly. 2020, I'll pay off my bank loans promptly. 2021, I'll be totally out of debt by next year. 2022, I'll try to pay off the debt interest by next year. 2023, I'll try to be out of the country by next year. <laughs> we all laugh because we know how notorious we are as humans to maintain our resolutions. We make plans, but we're not as good at following through with our commitments. And so many just don't make resolutions anymore. If these resolutions all deal with main aspects of our life, our physical health, our mental health, our finances, these are areas where whether you make resolutions or not, we all want to improve on them. Well, what about your spiritual life? Whether you make resolutions or not, do you have ambitions for growth in 2023? What would even spiritual growth look like? I mean, is this even something we need? I mean, we just saying, we talked about we're saved by Christ, so does it matter? I mean, we've been saved. Does anything else need to happen? Well, God commands us in 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's not an optional suggestion. That's his command that we're to be growing in our knowledge of him and knowledge of who he is. 
So this morning, we come to a passage that reminds us of three wonderful truths about a new identity in Christ. All corporate ideas. And I want to argue that these ideas are showing us one of the main areas we should grow in 2023 and every year. I say that because one of the weakest spiritual muscles, you might say, for Christians in the U.S. is our muscles of relational commitment to the church. We often don't have much commitment to our local church, to the people in it, I mean, because we just don't see how wonderful the church is. And yet Paul this morning is going to give us three snapshots about how wonderful the church is. He's going to show us that we are citizens in the beginning of verse 19. At the end of 19, he'll show that we are family. And then in verses 20 through 22, he'll show that we are the temple. If you like an outline, like to take notes, you can see all that on the back of the bulletin. But here, in the first section, citizens, we see that Paul is really drawing a conclusion of everything he said in verses 11 through 18. That's why verse 19 begins, So then, because of everything I've said. Well, what has he said? Well, you may remember from a few weeks ago, verses 11 and 12 talk about how we had conflict with one another. You know, the problem with our sin is not just that our relationship with God is distorted vertically, but because of sin now horizontally, our relationships are messed up. And the amazing truth is that Jesus not only fixed our relationship vertically with God, but he also made it so that our relationships horizontally can be fixed. How we resolve personal, interpersonal, international conflicts can be, and one day ultimately will be, resolved in the cross of Christ. Yet this had a specific issue in Ephesus, because there, Christians who were Jews were looking down on Christians who were Gentiles, calling them derogatively the uncircumcised rather than remembering that circumcision was given by god to the jews to point to their need for cleansing to point to their need that they need righteousness they took it as a mark well look we're righteous we've been circumcised and yet paul made clear in verses 13 that you are brought near by the blood of christ not by circumcision not by anything you do only the blood of christ brings us near so verse 14 told us he's our peace so that now what matters is not being jew or gentile but the peace we have with god so the vertical peace we have with god then leads to the horizontal peace with one another and so verses 16 through 18 talk about how christ reconciled us in one body through the cross so we both jew and gentile have access to god the father through the Holy Spirit. And then that leads to today, so that we are now, verse 19 tells us, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You know, no one likes to be considered strange. No one likes to be thought, oh man, here comes that strange person. A couple years ago, I was talking to some Christian friends and they were telling me about their daughter who went off to college. And as she was talking to other Christians, some of them said, you're strange. And what she was expressing was just normal Christian convictions. And her daughter was in tears saying, I don't want to be considered strange. You know, sadly today, even professing Christians find historic Christian truths strange. And we're considered weird. And increasingly, the surrounding culture finds us strange. Why are you so respectful to your boss? He's such a jerk. Just tell them off like everyone else does. What? 
Why would you wait for marriage? You some kind of prude or something? It's just another day. Why do you make such a big deal about going to church? Come on. Y'all are strange. And while we shouldn't seek to be strange on purpose, our values and beliefs are different because we're from another place. Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Or Hebrews 11 tells of the faithful deeds of believers in past time. In the Old Testament, it says in verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeting them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You know, when we first moved here, we lived in an apartment for two months, so we tried to find a house. And in the apartment complex, they had a map of the world, and they had little pins where people put where they came from. And I was shocked. In little tiny Wichita Falls, what I thought was just going to be some podunk cowboy town, there were pins all over the world. Pins from Africa, pins from Asia, pins from Europe. You know, due to MSU, due to Shepherd Air Force Base, we interact with a lot of different cultures here. And sometimes as you interact with them, you go, you're strange. Why do you eat that? Why do you dress like that? Well, when you come from a different place, you're different. And as the world sees us, as we live out our citizenship in heaven, there are times when we should look strange. You know, if you're always trying to be normal with the world, then you're not being faithful to God. There are times, because your citizenship is in heaven, that they should look at you, just as we look at the cultures around us, whether they're from Europe or Asia or Africa, and we go, that's strange. The people look at us and go, that's strange. You know, again, we're not seeking to be strange. We're seeking, though, to live faithfully to where our home is in heaven. And yet there should be a place we're normal, and that's when we're here. When we're with the church, people should go, that's normal. And that's what Paul really expands on. Because in verse 12, he said, we were strangers to the covenant promise, but now... We've been brought, be, brought near by the blood of Christ. And so he says in verse 19 again, Thus we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints. You know, being a citizen of Rome was a highly honored and sought after status. If you read the Acts of the Apostles, you'll read the various times where the Apostle Paul will appeal to his Roman citizenship because it gave him rights. And in fact, guards and even leaders over guards would treat him differently once they knew he was a Roman citizen. And yet, becoming a Roman citizen was not easy. The late Pastor Harry Ironside told of how the city of Philippi was given citizenship. There was conflicts around the city of Philippi, other regions trying to rebel against Rome. And so Rome sent an army, they brought it in, and when they arrived, the citizens of Philippi had a great feast waiting for them and supplies and more troops to help the Roman army. The Roman general was so excited about this, so pleased, he sent word back to the Roman Senate. And the Roman Senate, because of the Philippians' faithfulness to Rome, made them a colonia. What did a colonia mean? It meant that every single citizen of Philippi was now a citizen of Rome. They could now say, I'm a Roman citizen. And yet that is not how we became citizens of heaven. God did not look down and go, wow, 
those people in WFBC, they've been really good. You know, they're really faithful. They do what I want. So you know what? I'm going to let that church be citizens of heaven. No, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's not saying it's the depth of our sorrow for our sins. It's not our commitments and promises. Okay, God, now I'm going to do better. 2023 is the year I'm going to live faithful. No, we're brought near by the blood of Christ. And Paul's been emphasizing this over and over. Flip back to the beginning of this chapter. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You as dead people, we had no way to make ourselves alive. But look down at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Or look at verse 13. We've quoted it several times now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We are now citizens in heaven, not because of anything we've done, but rather because of the blood of Christ. And this citizenship is far greater than any Roman citizenship or U.S. (coughs) citizenship. Being a citizen of heaven means that you have a citizenship that is eternal. That your country is a place that has no suffering or death. That your country has perfect peace because the Prince of Peace reigns and dwells there. And yet you're not a citizen because you were born to Christian parents. You're not a citizen because your spouse is a Christian or you were baptized once. You're a citizen because you were brought near by the blood of Christ. Yet faith in Jesus, His blood, not only makes us citizens, notice what it says at the end of verse 19. And members of the household of God. Or in other words, our second thing Paul tells us, we are family. So first, we see we're citizens. Second, family at the end of verse 19. And notice this was not some incidental or accidental result of our salvation. Flip back to the beginning of this letter, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. There it says, beginning end of verse 4, In love He predestined us for... Well, why did He before time choose us? Because He wanted to adopt us as sons. God desired not just to deliver you from hell, He also desired to make you His sons and daughters. Being made part of God's family means we're given a new status. You know, God could have just saved us, and then like angels, just be there. We're not, angels are not part of God's family. Yet we have the privilege of adoption. Thus, as John writes, Oh, what manner of love of God that we should be called the children of God. Have you ever thought about the fact that you could be saved by God, but then He could still keep you distant in your relationship to Him? That he could have saved you and said, yes, you're saved, I'm not going to punish you, but you know what? I don't really want to be with you either. And yet God in his love not only takes us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, but he brings us into his family. There's an intimacy in our relationship with God. And you know, what a comfort it is to know that we're adopted by God. You know, sometimes you'll meet a family and they have children 
20, maybe some of this is your family's child's 20, 18, 17, and then 2. Oh, that one was a surprise. There's no surprise adoptions. No one ends up in court one day going, how do we get here? No, God purposefully, specifically, knowingly adopts every one of his children. There's no surprises. There's no, how did that happen? God in his love wanted you to be in his family. And remember the bigger picture, because Paul is writing to these Ephesians to let them know they're not second class citizens in the church. You know, many Jewish believers treated them as such. Well, yes, you're saved, but you're not circumcised. You don't follow the Jewish customs. And you can even read Galatians 2, how the apostle Peter started to treat Gentile believers this way. Yet God's plan throughout time has been to redeem and to bring into his family people, not just from the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And this is not some clever idea that Christians came up with. Paul in Romans 8 quotes from Hosea. There he says in Romans 9, sorry, not Romans 8, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said of them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. So in the church, there's not some really holy people and some unholy, some really important, some unimportant. No, in the church, we are all God's family. And we could pause and just spend the rest of the sermon rejoicing in this. But Paul says other things. So let's just note two wonderful privileges of being part of God's family. First, you can have confidence that God will take care of you. Jesus is telling his disciples and others about prayer. And in Matthew 7, he says, Which one of you, if your son asks you for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Well, I doubt last Sunday or whichever days before you open presents, your kids were all excited for what you told. they told you they wanted, and then they go to open it, and a boa constrictor comes out and kills them. Like, what? No, you're not going to give your kids something that's going to harm them when they ask for something good. And yet... All of us are sinners. That's Jesus' point. And yet, if us sinful parents know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our perfect heavenly Father give good things to those who ask Him? So since God is our Father, we can know He will care for us. We have a second privilege, though, and that is since God is our Father, we receive His loving discipline when we step outside of His rules. Now you might think, whoa, that's not really a blessing. I don't really like discipline. And yet discipline is for our good. There's a great section in Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 that expounds on this and would be really worthy of much reflection. And there he's reminding us, look, if a parent loves their child, they discipline them for their good. You know, it's not going to benefit your child if they grow up and they never learn to say yes and no when they're supposed to say yes and no. They're not going to be hired very long if they always tell their boss, well, I'm not going to do that. Okay, well, then you can leave. You know, they need to learn 
disciplined. They need to be formed and structured into the way God wants us to be. And a loving father does that. And God, as our perfect loving father, will not continue to allow us to go in unrepentant sin. And Paul makes clear that the church should be seen as family. You know, as we began, I said one of the weakest spiritual muscles in, for Christians in the U.S. is our muscles of relational commitment to our church. Now, I don't mean mere attendance at church events. Rather, I mean relational involvement with other people in whichever church you're a part of. As one of my professors said, Christians often live in terminally casual relationships. You know, we can know a lot of kind of biographical information about one another. Well, I kind of know their age. I know how many children they have. I know their marital status. I know where they work. I know roughly where they live. But we can often keep our relational cards close to our chest. We don't lovingly delve into the core issues of one another's lives. Our hopes and fears. Our sins and triumphs our sufferings and blessings. And God, but God intended for the church to be the place where true, deep, genuine care of others takes place. Yet I often find Christians trying to find that in so many other places. They try to make their school or their home Bible study or some other group to be the primary place where they're encouraged, fed, and have fellowship. Now I use the word primary on purpose because I'm not saying... You shouldn't have Christian friends outside of the church. You should. That's a wonderful thing. However, I'm saying that the normal place where we get fed, the normal place where we find fellowship, the normal place for encouragement that God intended was within the local church. Now, God's design for the local church is not just a place where we attend. We attend an event and then we go on the rest of the week. Rather, the church is the assembling of his family to care for one another, to Praise the Father to rejoice in the Son and share the comfort of the Spirit. So do you know the burdens and struggles of others in our body? Do you keep up with them? Or or you have your relational cards close to your chest? Yeah, you tell them how some generic things are. You talk about the weather, but you never let people in and you never seek to know them. God calls us to more than just attending events. He calls us to live with the privileges and responsibilities of being in His family. Thus, in Christ we've seen we're fellow citizens, we're family members, and now in verses 20 through 22, we see the third aspect of our new identity in Christ, for we are God's temple. So here, verses 20 through 22, He uses this image of temple, and He expands on this more, and He gives three different aspects. The foundation the cornerstone, and then the stones. And it begins in verse 20 saying, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now we should quickly note, if you have read the Bible, you might know, oh yeah, this image of the church of Christ, the foundation, now it's been used before, but often when the Bible uses images and metaphors, it doesn't use them exactly the same every time. So for example, 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So is Christ the foundation? Or, as it says here, are the apostles and the prophets? Well, they're just using the image in different ways. They're not contradicting each other. Just like you don't have to use an image the same way every time. 
Here, though, he's conveying that the apostles and the prophets, they're the instruments by which God chose to convey the truth about himself, about Christ, and how we should live in light of our faith in him. And Paul's words, Paul's point, is that the words and the teaching of the apostles and the prophets, they're the foundation of the church. And if you pour the foundation correctly, you don't report. It's there. It's stable. It stays. And thus, since the foundation of the church has been poured, in other words, the teaching, the doctrine has been laid down, we are not free to edit, change, or supposedly bring up to date what was said. You should always be very nervous if people in your church start saying, well, you know, we really need to get what we believe up to date with the times. Well, no, the foundation has been laid. We need to make sure we're building on the foundation of God's word. And throughout the New Testament, believers are exhorted and commanded to stick with what was taught. For example, Colossians 2, 6-7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. There to keep going as they were taught. Second Thessalonians 2.15 So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught, either by our spoken word or by letter. Or 1 Corinthians 11.2 Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now many of us know and adhere to the solas, sola fide, we're saved by faith alone, sola gratia, we're saved by grace alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone is our guide and authority. But that was never intended to mean that it's the only place we learn anything. Yes, scripture is the final, it is the authority, and yet that doesn't mean we don't consider the traditions and teachings of the church. All those verses we just read reminded us to hold to the traditional teachings of God's word. Well, second, unlike 1 Corinthians 3, Paul doesn't here refer to Jesus as the foundation because here he tells us in verse 20 at the end that Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. Now, in their time, the cornerstone was the first stone that would be placed. And it would be the stone from which all other angles and the rest of the building would be built. If the cornerstone were just slightly off, then the farther you build from it, the worse and worse the angles and the structure would be built. Not only was it the guide stone for the rest of the foundation in the building, but it also carried the most weight and gave strength and security to the building. In other words, Christ is not just another aspect of the foundation. He is the critical, he's the pivotal point from which everything else flows and stands. Storms may come, but the cornerstone stays firm. Now this may sound basic, but Christ and keeping Christ the cornerstone of the church, our church, is vital for our church's life. It's when groups just slightly alter what they believe about Christ that they move from truth to heresy. You may have friends who are Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, and they will say, we have to be saved by Jesus. Well, that's true. And they'll say, yes, he's the son of God. And if you don't think quickly, you go, well, yeah, he's, no, wait, no, he's the son of God. Well, it's a or the, I mean, their articles, are we getting kind of technical and grammar? Does it really matter? Well, yes, it matters a lot. 
He's the cornerstone. And if we shift a little bit, well, he's a son of God. Well, then we're denying who God is. We're denying who Christ is. We must keep the cornerstone straight. Or you may have Muslim friends. And what will they say? Well, Jesus, he's a prophet. They honor, they respect Jesus. Jesus taught us great things. He's part of the foundation. And yet Jesus is not part of the foundation. Because while Jesus was a prophet, he's more than a prophet. He's the son of God. And so he's not just part of the foundation. He's the cornerstone. And I've seen time and again that keeping Jesus the cornerstone not only keeps us from becoming heretical, but also keeps us from getting our message distorted. You know, when a church gets focused on anything besides Christ, things become to get askew. And sadly, over time, I've seen church after church get focused on secondary issues, and they lose sight of the main thing. And often these secondary things aren't bad. They might even be good and true, but they make the secondary things the primary things. You know, there's one church that I'm aware of that before COVID had about a couple hundred people. But as the COVID went on, the pastor would spend the first 15, 20 minutes of his sermon ranting about COVID and all the government stuff. Well, due to his rants near the end of COVID, they had about 1,500 people. You know, he could gather a lot of people that are united about their views on COVID. But we aren't gathering because of our views on COVID. We're gathering because of Christ. I've been in churches where the first question they ask you is, oh, well, when did you come to believe, not in Christ, but some view of systematic theology or some system of doctrine? And they get focused off of Christ onto certain views on theology. Recently, I was talking to another pastor, and he had a member tell him, this is pretty weird, but he had a member tell him that they wanted their church to be known for the plurality and equality of elders. In fact, the member told him, I want us to be a shining light for that. Now, I think we should have plural elders, meaning more than one. I think Keith and I should both have leadership in the church. We should have equal leadership. But that's hopefully not what people in Wichita Falls go, oh, you know WFBC? They have two elders. Man, if you want to know a church that shows you what elders should look like, go, no. Hopefully say WFBC, that's where they make Christ what the focus is. That is what is most important. And you've probably been around Christians or around churches where the environment of the church makes secondary views so important that it would hard, be hard to be there if you didn't hold to these things. You know, we get caught up on parenting styles or what movies can we watch or what electronics should we use. And to disagree is almost to be considered not a Christian. And again, I'm not saying those things are unimportant. We should think about all those things But when we lose sight of Jesus being the cornerstone, we'll have a distorted message. But it's even worse than that. Look at verse 21. Because it's in whom, in Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. If we're distorted from the cornerstone, we won't grow as Christ intended his building to grow. And that really leads to the third aspect of the temple, him discussing the stones or the bricks. You see, he's saying here, The God's people are not a static, unchanging body, or at least we're not supposed to be. We're supposed to be a building that is growing. We're not a completed project, but rather God adds to his beautiful temple and causes the temple to grow in holiness, beauty, and love. And so we, 
Those who trust in Christ are the stones in the temple. And there are so many applications, but let's just note three. First, sometimes we're mortared next to other parts of the church that we don't like. The Jews didn't care for the Gentiles. Yet Paul shows that the Gentiles, they're not just allowed on the church property, to kind of continue the metaphor loosely, but they become an essential part of the building. In other words, the Gentiles aren't an essential, unessential part, but rather they're an essential and integral part of God's plan now. And you may look at rich people and go, they're snobs. Or you may see people on government assistance and go, oh, those people, I can't believe they live in all the government. Or you may hate the values of the middle class. And yet, whether they're rich or on government aid or middle class, if they're in Christ, then we should be happily mortared next to them. Their brick, their stone is next to mine, and we together are building a beautiful temple for God. We'll joyfully be mortared next to them if they are in Christ. And yet second, sometimes God places our stone in the building in a place we don't desire. How come that stone is right where everyone sees it, and I'm the stone that's down next to the dirt? No one ever recognizes me. And yet God is the master mason. He places us in the prominence or lack of prominence where he deems best. Third, since we are built from the cornerstone, our lives must align to his will. Now this church is not about us. It's about him. And so this is not Jeremy's church. This is not Keith's church. It's not anyone's church except Christ's church. That's who the church is for. And thus the mission of the church must be tied to Him. That's why we're told to pray in Jesus' name. Not that we just tack on to the end of our prayers in Jesus' name as though that's like a rubber stamp. But we pray and we want our church, we want our individual lives to be in line with the cornerstone. Christ, we're praying in His name or in line with His will. May His will be done, not ours. But what is the purpose of us being a temple? was like every temple, it's where God dwells. Verse 22, Paul says it like this, in whom you also are being built into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Like the Old Testament temple, this does not mean we contain God inside ourselves. God is not trapped in us. Rather, God has graciously chosen to make himself known through his church. And so the church should be a glorious body because we are the temple of God. And that's why we try to be careful about who we let join our body. Since this is to be a holy and glorious body for Christ, well then we want to make sure, do you really understand the gospel? Can you tell it to us? Are you living a life, not that's perfect, but is trying to honor God? Do you have a credible profession of faith? And yet, did you notice that all of this is not about us as individuals, but it's about us Together, verse 21, we are joined together. Verse 22, we're assembled together. And so, since we're joined to Christ, it's not now just Him and us, or Him and me. It is now Him and us. And also, I think Paul would be shocked to hear a professing Christian say something like, you know, you can be a Christian, but you don't really need to be part of a church. Like, What are you talking about? Yes, on a theoretical level, that is true. You could be married and never live with your spouse. But 
If you're a Christian, you're assembled together. You're joined together with God's people. You know, based on what the New Testament says, I think you'd be surprised if we thought, you know, relationship in the local church, you know, that's not really that necessary. You know, if you want to do that, if that's kind of your gig, your thing, relationships, okay, but, you know, that's optional. Just trust Jesus. But Paul is saying this is an essential element. We're fellow citizens. We're fellow family members. We're in the temple together. You see, God sent Christ to create a people, not just save individuals. Now, of course, people can't exist without individual persons, yet God cares for us both as individuals and as a group. That's why we are joined and assembled together. And that's why I said earlier, the call of the New Testament is not just to attend an event, okay, got to go to church, okay, made it, check, good. No, but to come and worship together, to be connected with one another. And since all of these amazing things are true of us in Christ, that we are fellow citizens, that we're family, that we're the temple of God, isn't it odd when Christians say, you know, I don't really have anything in common with the people there. You know, I hear that sometimes. You know, that per- I don't have anything in common with them. How can you have nothing in common with someone who is a citizen of heaven with you, who is in the same family with you, who is part of the same temple, who has their brick mortar next to yours. Yeah, that brick above me, there's nothing to do with me. No, we are integrally connected. And I think sadly, we've often made secondary things, our academic interest, our hobbies, our preferred books, or the movies we like, the games we play. Those are the most important things in our life. And then we come and go, oh, well, those people don't like those things. I don't have anything in common with them. And yet, The most important thing in our life is not our age and stage. It's not all of those secondary things. It's Christ. He's the cornerstone. And so, friends, by faith in Christ, since we're members of the same household of God, since we are fellow citizens, since we're part of the temple of God, may we in 2023 and beyond make relationships in the local church an essential part of our growth and godliness. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we desire this. Lord, it's easy to talk about this and then we got to talk to that person who does have a lot of differences in us in many ways. And yet, Lord, would we each day find who we are in you most important? Lord, may the important but secondary things remain secondary and may we be united in love in fellowship around your Son. It's in His name we pray. Amen.